really provocative to sort of test their <laughs> reflexes, like having a like a, a, a fake kid or, or a, a picture of a kid leap out suddenly from the highway and see if they run him over or not. You know, that, that would be dangerous <laughs> to the extreme. So I think the IRB would have said ixnay on that. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by when we will all be back in the studio. Chris, I'm going to rely on your medical expertise here. When do you think we are all we'll, we'll be able to record our first studio-based episode again? I think by 2025. 2025? I mean, it feels a little optimistic to me, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hold out hope. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello. And we are also here with Dr. Jess Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Nice to be here. And as a reminder, as always, if you could head over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. Lots of interesting stuff over there. And then in, when you're on that internet anyway, you might as well head over to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast app is and give us a, a rating and, and a uh, review would be even better. We love them. And if you do a good one, we will read it on the air. We want at least one star. <laughs> at least. Well, obviously, we, we don't want zero stars. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on cannabis and driving performance. Might not be quite as simple as that, but then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about how much excess mortality there has been this past year in relation to COVID. And then our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Jess will tell us about her newest favorite animal. Can't wait. So Let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of cannabis use on driving, sort of. It was published in JAMA, and the study was entitled The Effect of Cannabidol. Is that how you pronounce it? Cannab Cannabidiol? I think we're going to have to rely so. on Chris. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's right. And tetra... On driving performance. Oof, stumbled through that one. A randomized clinical trial by first author Thomas Arkwell of the Lambert Initiative for Cannabinoid Therapeutics of the University of Sydney in Australia. So there are a bunch of headlines on this one. So Yahoo News says drivers using medicinal cannabis safe. I'm not sure that's exactly the right. I don't think that's what they said. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> CBD That's not does, what they said in this study at all. CB, <laughs> Where CB, did that come from? CBD doesn't impair driving ability, according to landmark study, says Vice. That's not Vice. what they said either. CBD only cannabis doesn't appear to affect driving ability, unlike THC. Business Insider says that one's a little bit more accurate. Does CBD impair driving ability? Study finds no evidence cannabis-derived CBD impairs driving, says Forbes. So That's not what they said either. You know... <laughs> These ones were a little bit unclear. So, Jess, can you tell us what they did in this study? And then we can talk about whether the headlines 
do or do not make any sense? Yeah, this was an interest. This was certainly an interesting one. So I, en- I actually enjoyed reading it. So if I, if any of our if any of our listeners are interested in a good article, this was a fun one and kind of interesting and, and uh, interesting and good to read. So obviously, you know the the kind of big picture here is that there is evidence to suggest that cannabis consumption at higher doses causes car accidents, and so and so this is kind of the framing of this article, especially as there has been greater access to medical marijuana and recreational marijuana across many states, including ours in Massachusetts, kind of what is potential consequences for lower use dosage for car safety? Chris is one of Chris's favorite topics, traffic safety. How does this Mm. play into recreational use of of cannabis? So anyway, what what these researchers did is actually kind of a fairly nuanced and interesting study. And also just, okay, just one more sec to back up because I'm, you know, I'm not familiar, so I'm going to do my best here, but they look at two different types of cannabis, kind of two, two different varieties, THC used for intoxication primarily as a recreational drug. CBD, they're, they're focused on as a medical treatment. Yeah, two di- two different compounds within cannabis. Yep. Okay, thank yeah. So this is where I don't know the difference. So I'm just I'll, I'll rely I'll rely on the two of you. So so THC they're making a distinction between THC used for intoxication or recreational use, CBD they're saying used for medical treatment, and then a combination of CBD and THC that could be used for recreation for milder intoxication. Okay, so they're they're talking specifically about these three variants. Of cannabis in this article. So this is a randomized case crossover trial to consider the effect of vaping as the exposure medium. So vaping CBD, THC, and combination CBD and THC on driving abilities. Okay. And there end point is this very subtle mechanism. You know, they're not looking at car accident or car crashes. It's the standard deviation of lateral position. And they use the acronym SDLP, which is a fancy way of looking at lane weaving. And Mm -hmm. so they were measuring this in this trial on the basis of centimeters, which I find really kind of intriguing. So this is fair. This is a very subtle outcome of driving performance. Okay. And there were 26 people in this study. So this is a small study, but you'll see this was, this was time and labor intensive. 26 mm-hmm. people in this study, 16 of them were women. Most of them were women. The mean age was 23 years. And these were casual users of cannabis products. Okay. Not in, they were not intense users, not medical users, but casual users of recreational cannabis. And so what they did each of the people in these study participated in eight separate driving tests under four different conditions. The first was placebo. The second one was THC only. The third was CBD only. And the fourth was a mix of THC and CBD vaped. Okay, so they, they would vape these four concoctions, okay, on four separate occasions. And then at 40 minutes after vaping, they did a one-hour road test, okay? And then they did a second one-hour road test at 240 minutes after vaping. So there were these four experimental conditions for each study participant, and then each study participant under each of these four experimental conditions had two one-hour driving tests where they were primarily looking at lane weaving 
as the core outcome, okay? And so this was like taking an on-the-road test, and I was actually just a couple weeks ago with my husband, we were talking with our older daughters about the on-the-road test and what to expect, and this was the same sort of thing where they had someone next to them who could control the car if the, if the study participant couldn't do it anymore. They also looked at some psychomotor and cognitive outcomes. Um, the most interesting one maybe which was perception of ability to drive, kind of playing into if, you know, this, this question of if someone had vaped, would they recognize that maybe they shouldn't get behind the wheel? So anyway, so their core outcomes after doing all of these different tests, in the, the closer, the shorter time period, at 40 minutes to 100 minutes after vaping, this SDLP lane weaving measurement was significantly increased within the THC group and the THC-CBD combination group, but not with CBD alone compared to placebo. Okay, so what this is implying is that people who were vaping THC, either alone or in combination with CBD, had more lane weaving than people who were vaping CBD alone or were just vaping a placebo at the time point closer to the point of vaping. So at the 40 minutes to 100 minutes in that first road test, and they did not differ at their second road test, which was 240 minutes after the vaping. Okay, so it was indicative of short-term driving impairment associated with THC. And the author said that it was similar to what's observed with a blood alcohol level of 0.05%. I don't know where that comparison came from, but that's what they were claiming. And there, was some, there were some interesting observations in terms of when the participants were aware or whether they were aware or when they were aware of their impairment. And it seems that the participants who vaped THC were aware of their impairment by the later time point, but not so much at the earlier time point, which maybe would have played into their decision to drive or not to drive. But that kind of later on, they were aware that they were experiencing some sort of impairment. There were no differences in the cognitive tests on the basis of the interventions. So anyway, that's the rundown. Okay, so essentially a, a randomized, you mentioned it was a crossover design. So meaning you would have people using all of these different substances at different times, which is very strong design in that you can control for a lot of the time fixed confounding factors, not a very large study, only 26 of which only 22 actually completed the study and seems to be an indication that the cannabis that was mostly dominantly THC based or, or mixed was potentially harmful, seemingly not a lot of evidence that the CBD dominant strains were particularly harmful. Chris, what was your what was your take on the study? Yeah, so I thought it was a really fascinating design. I think that the, the sample size was unfortunately far too small to really measure a lot of the, 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 the outcomes that they were looking at. Because what, you know, while what Jess said is true, that there was no statistically significant difference between, in terms of the confidence in driving ability or the perceived driving impairment, the confidence intervals were super wide on this. Mm -hmm. And if you just look at the point estimates, there, there really does seem to be quite a, a striking difference, actually, that the people who had been exposed to the THC 
you know, were far less confident in their, their ability to drive and also early on perceived a much higher a degree of, per, of, of driving impairment, but that the, 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 the confidence intervals around those point estimates were wide. And so technically that's true, but I, I think it's not actually true. I think it, this, the, this is just a matter of the fact that they only had 26 people in the study. Okay. So, so Chris, I see w- w- what you're saying is that there was in this perceived impairment there was actually a difference. It's just that the confidence intervals were so wide that you didn't find a statistically significant difference. There was no statistical difference for those who had CBD dominant strain in terms of their driving, but in terms of the the perception there was is what you're saying. That's right. And but the, if you know if you if you take the point estimates as being the most likely true value in each of these cases, there there are some other parts of these data that are really pretty interesting. You know, so, sort of starting with this whole question about cannabidiol and what does it do. So to my knowledge, the only thing that cannabidiol has been authorized to do as a treatment is is a, as a therapy for some several rare forms of epilepsy. And there's actually an FDA approved indication for that. And there's a, a marketed form of cannabidiol that, that's been standardized and is used to treat those forms of epilepsy. But for the rest, the, the you know what we understand about cannabidiol, CBD, is, is pretty limited. It's generally assumed that cannabidiol is not intoxicating in the way that THC is. But beyond that, I think you know we're still at a pretty early stage in the research and understanding the pharmacology of this compound and what it would be used for. So with that said, it's, it's sort of interesting that when you look at the the you know the confidence to drive score at at zero minutes, which is right after they finished vaping, and 25 minutes and 130 minutes going up to 200 minutes, that you know there is this sort of you know decline in the confidence to drive, particularly amongst the THC only group. But in the THC and the CBD combined group, where they received the same total number of milligrams of THC in both, right? So mm-hmm. it was it's not like they had half THC, half cannabidiol, but they, you know, and they they'd cut the dose in half to make it. They actually gave them the same dose that was in the cannabidiol only group and the THC only group. So they got both of them at full strength. And and the the confidence to drive scores are much lower for the THC only group than the THC CBD group. And and that effect persists out to, you know, really 130 minutes where there, there seems to be that difference, kind of implying that the CBD is to some degree counteracting the effect of the THC itself, which which is not a totally crazy hypothesis because it's been proposed in pharmacology that THC receptors may be blocked by cannabidiol. So it's not that cannabidiol makes you feel high, but it may be that it, it, it decreases the you know, the effect of THC because it's competing for the same receptors, even if it's not activating those receptors. So I think there's sort of interesting pharmacology in this graph. But, you know, putting that all aside, you, you know, we, 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 we were sort of puzzled by what is the, I guess, we, I don't know if I can say clinical relevance, but the public health relevance of a, of a 2.9 centimeter deviation. In the paper, they say that this, this is, is, is analogous to a a blood alcohol level of 0.05, which at least in the state of Utah is considered to be the legal limit for for alcohol in order to drive a car. So technically, even in Utah, this means that you're you're drunk. So the 2.9 is is I, I guess I would infer is not a a negligible mm. difference yep. in driving skill, as was implied in those media clips we heard at the beginning. But this is actually you know somewhat to you know, legally intoxicated. And so therefore it is a, is a significant loss of driving function primarily due to THC and to a lesser degree, the THC CBD combo. 
I so I would agree with you, Chris. Though I I would say that the the headlines were except for the 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 first one, which was was driving using medicinal cannabis safe, which is clearly wrong. The other ones focused on CBD. The CBD doesn't impair driving ability, and and that you know the the. You know, again, I, I take your point that there is some impact on, on some of the, the subjective measures, but on the, the more objective measure, it doesn't seem like there was. Jess, what's, what, was your, what was your take on this study? Oh, one of the interesting things to me in this study was that the participants, in addition to the very small sample size, the participants were all very young. They were in their early 20s. And that could speak to that being the population of greatest relevance for generalizability in terms of who might be vaping cannabis products and then driving. But it also reflected a population where they're likely, most likely to have the sharpest reflexes for driving. It could go in a number of ways. You could say that the, these very young participants were likely to have sharpest reflexes and maybe able best to counteract mm-hmm. any effects of cannabis in terms of their driving, but they also sure. might be less experienced drivers than, you know, someone in their 40s or 50s who was vaping, for example, might have slower reflexes, but might have more driving experience. So I was I was just thinking about the study population and how that relates to generalizability of the findings across users of cannabis products. And I wasn't really sure how to how to conclude on that. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. an interesting point because of course there may be effect modification by mm-hmm. driver age and experience, but of course I, I certainly couldn't imagine a scenario in which we regulated your ability to drive under, you know, under the influence of cannabis based on your age. So presumably mm-hmm. there will be just some, you know, some determination of, of how much cannabis you can have before you're considered to be legally over the limit. But I, I, I do take your point. So my thinking on this, so I thought it was an interesting study. I, I do think that the study design that they used was quite strong for the 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 sample size that they were going to use which was only 26 and strong in the sense that when you do these crossover designs you control for a lot of the confounding that is time invariant so you know the the age and sex and those things don't really change much over the time period of the study and so those wash out and that's really nice you're doing a randomized trial so you're getting the the random variation in who's you know who's getting the exposure to begin with, but you also get this additional benefit of the the time fixed confounding washing out. But at the end of the day, it's still only twenty six people and or, or twenty two people that completed the study. And I'm you know I'm 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 not going to draw strong conclusions based on a study of twenty six people ever. In addition to which, it seems to me like there is there is some potential for somewhat strong confounding potentially by time invariant factors, namely being the road conditions. So if there, you know, <laughs> if you're out and there are a lot of, you know, crazy people on the road, your behavior is going to be different from if you're driving on a, a rural road by yourself. Now they're on the presumably they're on the same roads, but they the conditions may differ from time to time. The second thing is I don't totally get the ethics of putting a person with a potentially impaired ability behind the wheel on an open road test, even <laughs> given the safeguards of having the instructor, you know, the, the person evaluating there with an additional set of controls, because I mean, those the, obviously that's going to impede uh, or reduce the risk of an accident, but it's not going to completely eliminate it. And uh, that just struck me as, as a little weird 
but also wouldn't that potentially have the wouldn't that have the potential to reduce the amount of variation if you have another person in the car who can control the the steering wheel and presumably is going to do so whenever there is a potentially dangerous situation i mean presumably this since they didn't report on that it's probably not very much but it did it did occur to me no. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there were some people who opted not to participate because yep. they were concerned about safety and you could say maybe those people were the more skittish drivers or were the more anxious drivers in general and so didn't want to participate for for that reason. So no, I I agree with you. There were a couple things that sort of stuck out to me that I thought were really curious. One was that the average number of kilometers driven per year by these these individuals was forty five hundred kilometers a year, which is not a lot of driving actually. That's that's about three thousand miles a year. And mm. I probably do you know in my commute to Boston University back in the days when I was commuting to Boston University was probably around 16 to 18,000 miles a year. So Mm -hmm. um, way, way, way above this. So I would see these as being very low driving Mm. frequency drivers. Again, which if there is effect modification by experience and and, and, and age, that could factor in here. Sure. The other thing is that I... I'm I'm not sure. I mean, obviously they're they're doing this on the highway. So they're, they're, they, they can't do anything like, you know, really provocative to sort of test their <laughs> reflexes, like having a, like a, a, a fake kid or, or a, a picture of a kid leap out suddenly from the highway and see if they run them over or not. You know, that, that would be dangerous <laughs> to the extreme. So I think the IRB would have said ixnay on that. But there are other ways of, of doing this because I, I kind of feel like the driving test they gave them, while I understand that this, that there's, you know, there's a, there's a clinical link to a, a, a degree of alcohol intoxication, they were not really giving them a very hard test, mm. right? They had to drive on a circuit in the right, you know, in the slow lane, you know, going basically 60 miles an hour for an hour mm. and do nothing else, you know, just stick to your lane. But they weren't tasked to respond in any way to an emergency situation or, you know, all really they were asked to do is to drive straight. And so, you know, saying that, you know, their ability to drive straight you know, varying by only, you know, an inch or so from, from the, from the placebo group, you know, is, you know, again, it's, it, it, it's, it's somewhat meaningful, but it doesn't seem like this was a very provocative test of their true driving capacity, which is not how well do people do on average when they're just driving and nothing happens, but how well do they respond to an emergency? Mm-hmm. And they didn't test that at all. Or even how well do they respond to some sort of commotion, which, which could have been, you know, something that could have been added to the study in a not too complicated way. If there's all of a sudden there's noise commotion and does that affect, you know, the ability to be able to duly focus on the, or to, you know, kind of focus on the road and block out noise or, you know, something of that sort where kind of getting into the multitasking that's often required when you're in a real life driving situation, not just driving in total silence on the road when you know you're being monitored, but kind of something that might simulate more of a real life experience, especially maybe for these young people where they might have other people in the car, people are talking, music, something like that, that might replicate a more real life situation. A cell phone, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Being distracted by talking on the cell mm-hmm. phone, even hands free, I think would have been a really interesting, you know, sort of sort of test. I mean, the, this book I referenced in our last episode called Traffic talks all about about the the difficulty of multitasking mm-hmm. and that like how your your reflexes when you're driving drop substantially as soon as you start talking to someone on the cell phone, even if, if it, even if it's just a hands free device. Yep. 
So just one thing I just want to point out before we end. So so it's worth noting that there, if I understood it correctly, their outcome measure is a measure of standard deviation, not of the mean. So so we're talking about you know a, a variation of an inch, but that's not really an inch in average movement. That's an inch in the the standard you know the the, the measure of ah, how much yes. variability there is. So it, it could be that that is a more meaningful amount of movement than we truly understand. So I I I, I trust that they under understood that, but it, it, you know it was a little confusing to me as somebody who's not in this field. Any any last thoughts before we before we move on on this one? I guess I would love to I would love to see this experiment replicated in in a, in a more controlled way like on a speedway. Yeah. Yep. Where where not only do they have to do, you know, you know, simulated highway driving for an hour, but that they were also exposed to certain, you know, random events like some proportion of these individuals, you know, there would be a you know, a a warning that suddenly shows up on the dashboard that says, stop, stop, stop. And they have to do an emergency stop and, and to track how quickly it takes them to get to zero miles yep. per hour. Yep. I think that kind of thing, or to, to weave or maneuver or respond to an event, something more than just, do they drift a little bit more or less than they, than they would have otherwise? Yep. I would like to see that. At least some sort of variability in the course. I mean, I think you could say, you know, it looked as if they were doing the same driving course four times and twice each, you know, after each intervention. And so kind of switching where by the time someone's getting to their sixth, seventh, eighth time around this driving course, they really know what to expect, regardless of what they're of what they've been dosed, whatever they vaped, they, they, they know what the road is going to look like. And so even just some kind of structured changes mm-hmm. that would be similar across all participants at that dosing level, but just to kind of provide some variability. So it's the, it, you, you kind of lose that. I'm used to this effect already. Yep. yep. And I think that's the, you know, the, the randomness in the order in which you had the different substances was mm-hmm. meant to mm-hmm. deal with some of that. But again, with only 22 subjects, it's really hard to say. All right. So I think to summarize, you know, we thought it was an interesting study, but we'd want more data before we'd really be able to draw any strong conclusions. All right, so let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about an article on the excess mortality from COVID-19. So there was an article in JAMA that was entitled All-Cause Excess Mortality in COVID-19-Related Mortality Among U.S. Adults Aged 25 to 44 Years, March to July of 2020. It was by first author Jeremy Faust, though I did want to point out that the one of the authors on this was Dr. Rochelle Walensky, our friend and colleague and soon to be new head of the the CDC assuming confirmation goes well. There's confirmation <laughs> for the CDC, right? Or is that uh, uh, is that just an I appointment? I don't know. I think it's just an appointment. Oh, okay. So there we go. But the reason I was interested in talking about this one is cuz there was so much talk at the beginning of the epidemic that maybe, you know, since deaths were concentrated amongst those who were over the age of 65 and in particular over the age of 80, that maybe the overall mortality was not that high when you averaged across the entire population. And maybe the reason why we were seeing so much mortality was simply because it was, you know, we were not protecting the convalescent homes and and nursing homes. And, you know, that we're just seeing excess mortality. and, And essentially, if we just protect the elderly, we would do better. And so what they did was they compared COVID-19 deaths in the 25 to 44 year olds you know, with what is usually the most common cause of death in that group, which is accidental drug overdoses. And I'm going to read to you a little bit from the article. They said, 
Between March of 2020 and July of 2020, a total of 76,000 odd all-cause deaths occurred amongst individuals 25 to 44. And that was just about 12,000 more than expected. So about 20% increased mortality in, again, those who are in a healthy, you know, typically a low mortality age group. And then they said among that group, there were 4,535 COVID-19 deaths, accounting for 38% of measured excess mortality. So a substantial portion of that excess mortality appears to be related to COVID-19. And then they went on specifically and said, uh, during surges in particular regions in New York and New Jersey, the incident rate for all-cause mortality was 2.3% and 80% of deaths were related to COVID-19. Similar results from a bunch of different regions. Now, these were highly hit regions, so fair enough. But then they say deaths due to COVID-19 exceeded 2018 unintentional opioid deaths during one month in 2020 in a bunch of different regions and either exceeded or were similar to the, you know, again, the highest known cause of death amongst this group over the entire study period. So the reason I'm interested in this is I'm curious your thoughts on whether we can now stop saying that COVID-19 is simply a disease of of severe illness in the elderly. Now, I I do want to point out that in absolute terms, clearly the amount of deaths occurring in this group is far lower than it's occurring in the, the 65 plus or the 80 plus. But in terms of what we would expect for mortality in these groups where mortality is generally low, there is clearly an increase. So can we can we put to bed this idea that this is simply, you know, a, a disease that affects the elderly? Mm, yeah, I really I really like the way you phrase that, Matt. And I and I totally agree because it, it it is making a very strong case that while the you know in absolute terms the magnitude of this effect from COVID nineteen is is smaller than the elderly, it's not zero. This is actually a big deal. And 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 by comparing it with opioid deaths, which we have already agreed as a society is a big deal, we're we're, we're basically saying the the magnitude of this problem is 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 therefore significant because yep. we're you know it's 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 as bad or worse than heroin overdoses in some cases. This is a big deal. Jess, what, what was your reaction? Yeah, I was interested in a few things about this. And first, a shout out to my college classmate, Jeremy Faust. So oh. go, go Eve. That was pretty cool. One of the interesting things that stuck out to me with this paper first was the power of being able to do fairly straightforward analyses with publicly available data Mm -hmm. that I think we in epidemiology tend not to do enough. Like this data exists and we can really look at it in interesting ways and kind of draw some intriguing conclusions from data that's just out there. So I thought it was clever to to do this sort of analysis. Secondly, I I was interested in that line of thought involving unaccessed preventative care during the pandemic. And in terms of looking at the excess death and being able to distinguish between, for example, unidentified COVID deaths Mm -hmm. and deaths from other things that maybe would have been prevented if someone had been able to see a doctor, but they weren't able to see a doctor, but it wasn't COVID. That was what I was thinking about is kind of that distinction between certainly, yes, there's a a proportion. So there's, you know, 30, what is it? 38% of the, of the deaths are, are tagged to COVID. And then the remainder of the deaths are not tagged to COVID, but, but the hypothesis is, is that some of them are in fact due to COVID, but some of them are likely due to not COVID factors, but are still related to the pandemic in related terms to of the pandemic, unaccessed but not, medical not COVID. Yep. related to the but but not but not due to causal result from a COVID infection. 
<laughs> if, if I could add to that, you know, we always talk about these papers about whether we believe them or we don't believe them. And I, I, I found that, you know, even though this is, this, this article is, is one page long in terms of text with one table. So it's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's as brief as you can possibly be. I was persuaded by this. And one of the most persuasive yeah. parts of this was that they, they look at the region by region incidence of COVID mortality by month. And in all but one of these regions, the the mortality, actually in every one of these regions, the peak mortality due to COVID aligned with the the peak in observed excess deaths. Mm-hmm. So it's like it seems like to be a very strange coincidence that those two would be unrelated. So I, I don't know. I found that that simple piece of of sort of you know descriptive epidemiology to be really really profound. I I agree with you, Chris, and I think that the 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 power here is in the fact that. We can, we could, you know, I mean, in the early days of the pandemic, people were arguing that everything is, you know, we're overcounting COVID deaths and, and, you know, you're, you're anyone who has a heart attack and if they had COVID, then you're calling it a COVID death. Well, you know, the whole point of looking at all cause mortality is it doesn't matter. We don't have to classify the deaths one way or the other. We could just look at whether or not there is an increase in mortality. And therefore we can say whether or not the pandemic, not specifically COVID, but the pandemic is having an effect on mortality. You could argue that some of this, as Jess says, is is pandemic related, not 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 pandemic caused directly, but rather our reaction to the pandemic could could be related, and that is that is truly possible. But clearly, there is something going on, and you know, there was and still is. There are so many people who, you know, look at at what's going on with COVID and say, well, you know. 99.9% of, of 25 to 45 year olds survive with COVID. So why are we going to, why are we going to have lockdowns and things like that? It doesn't affect them. Well, when you actually look at the fact that 25 to 49 year olds don't generally have high mortality, or 45 year olds have high mortality, small increases lead to, you know, large or, or, you know, can be, can be impactful and meaningful. And as you say, Chris, you know, the idea that, that we would we would do nothing about say something like opioid deaths, which are are you know a, a comparable or suicides, is absurd. We would absolutely want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that I thought was interesting about this is that it just reflects that I think we're going to be dissecting the data from the pandemic for years and years and years, and kind of there's going to be interesting observations that are going to jump out. Like you know maybe we'll figure out some more data and to, to kind of fill in some of the gaps here in terms of these excess deaths. But it, 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 it was reflecting to me as I was reading this that as we're looking at this data, as it's coming out, we're still just getting a piece of the big story. And it's going to take it's going to take a while to really unravel all the consequences involved with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. agree with that. Yep. It's going to be a while. All right. Well, let's move on then to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Jess, why don't you why don't you go first this time? Mine is brief, and again, in my theme of animal, from the animal kingdom, I just kind of liked this one. This was a very recent study published at the end of January in the journal Marine Mammal Science. I'm sure you both read that one regularly. Yes, I've got my copy right here. <laughs> As it comes out, Marine Mammal Science. Um, I mean, I think this might have been my alternate career if I had not gone into epidemiology. Maybe it would have been Marine Mammal Science. But um, there were some researchers who observed wild seals clapping 
Mm, yep. you know, and, oh. and like seal, seal clapping is one of the activities that they train seals to do yep. in, you know, aquarium shows and whatnot. They have them do tricks. They clap their fins. They balance balls on their noses, you know, stuff like that. Seals are obviously highly intelligent, but it was thought that clapping was just a behavior that was something that was, you know, that was just trained for reward. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was this observation of watching animals in the wild off the off the coast of England. And they observed male seals only clapping both underwater and above the water. And it was when they were near other seals. And so they were trying to hypothesize what the meaning of the behavior was, you know, and so they hypothesized, the authors hypothesized that it either could be due to attracting mates, that like the, you know, the seal that clapped the loudest maybe was able to either attract the mates or scare away competitors mm -hmm. for the women seals so that they thought it had some sort of reproductive, reproductive effect, the clapping, um, which then kind of speaks to if you have seals that are in aquarium settings and they're being asked to clap all the time. Time. Like, what does this, what does this mean to them? Right. And does it mean anything to them? If this is actually a natural behavior that seals do in the wild and, you know, we're asking them to reproduce it for, for our own amusement. And, and presumably the, that of course makes it easier to train them to do this if they already, you know, have some dates. Yeah. Right, they've got some dates. I mean, the next thing will be like, you know, they'll show like you give them some beach balls and they're juggling them on their nose in the wild. And, you know, they're trying to, I don't know, to also attract mates. But It's not so very different right. from what, what we do. That is true. <laughs> to, to attract mates when you get down to it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I would yeah. reference the 1970s movie Saturday Night Fever uh, if you want some some good data on the subject. <laughs> you think that, that set the the moves that John Travolta has are very similar to seal clapping? It, it, you know, it's just on the end of the continuum. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Chris. What do you what do you got for us? Well, well I got a, a, a quickie. I was I was looking for elegant experiments on Google, and the first one that popped up was in the American. Physics Society, APS News, This Month in Physics History, in mm. which was published in June 2006. And it talks about the, the seminal experiment by the Greek, I don't know what you would call them, because they weren't scientists, because that term hadn't been invented yet. So we'll say a, 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 a scholar called Eratosthenes. And it was his seminal experiment to try to figure out the diameter of the Earth. And, and so it, it had been noted. First, of all, I should say that this guy Eratosthenes was, was a very clever fellow who was in Ptolemaic Egypt, meaning mm -hmm. Ptolemaic, meaning that, that, you know, after Alexander the Great kind of romped through the Middle East and then died young, his generals split up the empire and one of them, Ptolemy, went off and took over Egypt. And so that whole period of Egyptian history is called Ptolemaic Egypt, which is basically okay. the Greeks running Egypt. And so he was a, a Greek living in Egypt and came from some town in Libya, apparently. But he was a polymath and eventually made his way to Alexandria, where he got trained and then was working at the Library of Alexandria. So he was mm -hmm. what, you would, what we would call a university professor, basically. Okay. And his nickname was Beta, because he was good at many things, but not the best at any. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was I like delightful. That. I really uh, like that. Beta. <laughs> he was Beta. He so, was number two. At least he's not Omega. So, yeah. um, you know, anyway, he was he had heard that there is a there was a dry well in this in the Egyptian city of Syene, which is now Aswan. 
Mm-hmm. that on the summer solstice would shine straight down without casting a shadow, meaning that the sun must have been right above it, okay? Mm-hmm. And okay. so he, he figured that, like, if you found, you know, if the world was 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 spherical, which they believed at that time, yep. that if you measured in another well with a stick pointing straight up on the summer solstice, that there would be some deviation in the shadow of the stick. Because in Syene, it should be pointing right down, there'd be no shadow. But yep. anywhere else, there should be a shadow. And then you could measure at... At you know high noon, which even then they could pretty much figure out. You could figure out what the the, the deviation and the number of degrees was in this in the in the in the in the shadow. And then mm-hmm. if you knew the difference between Syene and this other place, which turned out to be Alexandria, you could then calculate the circumference of the Earth, which he did. Mm. And and so the, the the sort of interesting thing about this is they didn't have have rulers to sort of measure physical distance between these two cities, which were quite some distance away from hundreds of miles away from each other. And so he did it using these guys called bematists, who were architectural experts who had been trained to walk in a stereotypical fashion, such that each stride was identical. Oh. And he had them he had them measure the distance between Alexandria and Syene, and thereby calculated the the circumference of the Earth. To be 25,000, excuse me, 250,000 stadia. Now, we don't really know what a stadia was. I do not. We don't have like a, a stadia rule book. But so there's there's some argument about how long that, how, 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 how big a stadia was. But based on the estimates of what a stadia probably was, the circumference of the Earth was between 24,000 and 29,000 miles, which is pretty darn close because the actual yeah. circumference is 24,900. So he, he, he really actually kind of nailed it using a stick stabbed into the ground and that applying so cool. basic geometry principles. And I thought that that is like good on you, Eratosthenes. That is, and this guy was called Beta? He was called Beta, but I mean, I think that that's an alpha. Right that's there. an alpha move that's right an alpha. there, if ever I heard one. So I was impressed. Very cool. Very cool indeed. All right. Well, mine, I went back to the familiar well of one of our favorites, which is the BMJ Christmas edition. And I went to this year's BMJ Christmas edition, but I went to it for a reason this year, which is that the article that was that I'm going to talk about is entitled The Time to Act is Now, a Pseudo-Systematic Review. And it was published by first author Nathan Ford, who is, in fact, somebody who I have I've worked with in the past, which now means I, I now know two people who have been published in the BMJ Christmas edition, which, as you know, is one of my lifelong goals. But this one I thought was really, really good in that, you know, oftentimes articles in the BMJ's Christmas edition are they're sort of really interesting and they come up with some kind of a funny idea. But the, you know, the way they're written isn't always the, the, the cleverest or the funniest. This one has so many good lines in it. So the idea <laughs> here is they say the time to act is now. This is a commonly used clarion call in medical journals. It can be found in titles of editorials, commentaries, letters, and occasionally original research. Nevertheless, we are concerned about the potentially endless stream of demands placed on health professionals around the world to act now without any obvious rationale and little regard for competing priorities. Which, of course, Chris, you and I know this does, in fact, appear often in medical medical journals. How many emergencies can we tolerate? Exactly. So they say... One of us had the idea years ago to undertake a review of papers that claimed the time for action is now. However, there never seemed to be a good time. Each time a new study got published claiming the time for something or other is now, 
There would be a brief increase in motivation, but this would soon fade. Finally, in May of 2020, with nowhere to go and little to do at the weekends, we decided it was time to act. So they searched for studies that made the claim, the time is now in the title. And then they said, we were unsure whether authors only wanted people to act now or whether deferred action was also a desirable goal. We therefore undertook a sensitivity analysis that included the following statements. The time to act is later and <laughs> the time to act is in a bit. <laughs> so were they found, No, I'll get to that. So they, they found 595 titles of which 512 were included for review. They then excluded 77 studies that used a question mark in the title. So the time to act is now question mark. Study selection was based on being able to access the full text free of charge version without having to bother logging into multiple journal sites using a friend's library access. I think that's a reasonable criteria the systematic review should use. And then we excluded one that asked, pediatric AIDS is now not the right time to act because another group of clinicians had beaten them to it by asking exactly the same question a year before. This is like a very commonly used thing. So in the end, they found 50 studies that used an exclamation point, presumably because stating that the time to act is now was considered insufficient to express urgency. Claims about urgency varied by discipline. So the greatest number of, of papers making the claim were in oncology, which had 72 studies, surgery, which had 60 studies, and pediatrics, which had 33 studies. Pediatricians were also five times more likely than geriatricians to claim that the time to act is now possibly reflecting how critical the passage of time is for children. And then they say we were unable to find any studies that claim the time to act is later or <laughs> the time to act is after a nap or let's wait a bit. So they conclude the findings of review suggest that it is always time to act. The claim that the, the time is now is rarely found in corrections. For example, when authors have had second thoughts about when to act. It is also it is also never found in obituaries. I suppose not. What about in the Journal of, of Shakespeareology? Would they could be. the time to act is now is generally true. Could be. Could That's be. so awesome. I, just, I love it. I thought that was such a clever one, and the fact that it's done by some colleagues that I know makes me even happier. You know, it, it occurs to me, Matt, thinking about systematic reviews and like, you know, my, my first rule of systematic reviews is never to do them. Yes. <laughs> because there's such a pain. They and, take and forever. They take forever. And what takes forever is the asymptote because there's always like five or six papers in some like obscure journal that your library doesn't subscribe to because it's a terrible journal. And you know that when you finally find the paper, it's going to have no influence on your systematic review or your meta-analysis whatsoever. And yet you feel obliged to do it. And I would love to do an analysis to see how many meta-analysis conclusions are in any way altered by the asymptotic papers that you pull in at the end. Such and maybe a good we question. could just like say, let's stop doing that it's just what's the point <laughs> such a good question i totally agree with you on that one totally agree maybe next year in the christmas edition sounds good to me all right well that is the end of our program if you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on you can tweet us at, at pop you can tweet me at, at prof matt fox or chris at id.gill or you can find us on the population health exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org we want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and having the best 
cat house in the business. And by cat house, I want to be clear, I do mean a house for his cats. Yes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you have enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. Bye, everybody.